Drilling fluids touch just about everything in the drilling process. We're here to deconstruct the drilling process and drilling fluid concepts to provide a deeper understanding of our industry. In each episode, we'll share information, talk to interesting people, and maybe share a few stories along the way. Welcome to The Flow Line, a production of AES Drilling Fluids, brought to you by Matt Offenbacher and Justin Gautier. All right, here we are again, Matt. Welcome to another episode of The Flow Line. To everyone out there, thanks again for listening. Matt, before we get kicked off, I always like to say, anyone out there who'd like to support the show, please do us a huge favor uh, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. Uh, the feedback we continue to get is great. So again, we appreciate all the love out there. Uh, hopefully, we're continuing to educate and, and shine some light on some topics that normally otherwise would be discussed, but uh, there may be some uncertainty that we're uh, able to uh, you know, help iron out. So um, Matt, another topic that you know comes up, and it's not quite as common as some of the other ones that we've discussed, but uh, you know, talk about drilling fluids. And when I say drilling fluids, uh, I'm not talking slang, you know, drilling with an apostrophe. It's literally drill in uh, reservoir type fluids, right? And, yeah. and so then that relates to open hole completions. And so if anyone out there is familiar with that, uh, you'll know what we're talking about. But I think it's an important topic we discuss because it's not, again, not as common as, you know, the unconventional world, but something that even on land that uh, we've got stuff close to home here in Houston that goes on. So I think it's a good idea to talk about that. What do you think? Yeah, I agree completely. Cool. And and the reason I think it's a good topic, not only because it's interesting and there's a lot of science behind it, but you have a pretty extensive background in it. So uh, you, you're definitely the right man for the job to to talk about it. And and uh, like you always do such a good job of debunking some of the myths. So uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll discuss a little bit about that. So uh, why don't we go ahead, Matt, if you don't mind, uh, give a brief description on, on what drill-in fluids actually are. So... Uh, I think, you know, one of the most interesting things with, with drilling fluids is there's a lot to them, but they're exceedingly basic if you get down to the fundamentals. So a, a, a reservoir drilling fluid, a drilling fluid, a reservoir drilling fluid, um, however you, you term it, is a fluid that is specifically designed to minimize formation damage when you drill the reservoir. Um, and this is particularly important when we're doing an open hole completion, as we call it. So this is where I don't case anything off. Um, uh, so I'm not, normally when you case in cement, you perforate so you can shoot past the damage that, that you caused. In an open hole completion, whatever damage you place there is going to harm your production. Um, so the, the composition of the, of the fluid is very important, but when you get down to hole cleaning and some of these other fluid properties, um, it's, it's pretty similar to every, every other section you drill. Um, the concepts are the same as far as rheology and, and that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, it's mud, but it's special mud, reassuringly expensive mud at times. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, um, and you mentioned it, it, a lot of times it's, you drill into it. Um, and, and the biggest, uh, you know, from my experience drilling, doing drilling fluids programs, uh, we did some of these up in Canada and it was very important to whatever products you were using that interacted with the reservoir were, ex- were either acid soluble or they needed some, uh, you know, they needed to be able to be broken uh, with a dirt, like an enzyme break or something like that, because the the skin factor is extremely important of how much invades into the reservoir, what products are, you know, anything that you add in there can affect the production. So, um, you know, talking about, you know, the production, there, there's really only certain formations that you would do uh, something like this with, right? Yeah, so it's predominantly, you always hear hand-in-hand uh, sand control. 
a lot of this is young formations that tend to be very prolific um, and and don't have a lot of consolidation. So if I were to bring them on production, let's say through perf tunnels, I'd probably bring back a lot of sand because I didn't have enough surface area to flow back as much as I wanted to. Um, you know, some of these wells I've been involved in produce twenty five thousand barrels of oil a day. Mm. Um, you know, where was that? Like roughly, uh, is it offshore, obviously, or land? Offshore, uh, you know, Azerbaijan has some really prolific fields. Mm. Uh, West Africa wasn't, you know, it was pretty common to get ten or fifteen thousand barrels a day on some of those wells. So these were, um, these were very high dollar wells. Uh, a lot of it was invested in getting to that oil. Um, but if you think about it, whatever you leave back with the drill-in fluid um, is between you and the oil. And you want to bring it back, but normally to keep the sand from flowing back with it, because it's an unconsolidated formation, you don't actually put casing, uh, like I said, you'll, you'll run a, a sand control screen or something that will actually retain the sand from flowing back mm. while the hydrocarbons come back. Um, and I guess the other thing I ought to take a, a time to point out is, um, so you have producer wells, which are pretty common. I'm flowing the oil back. Right. But um, one of the things that reservoir drilling fluids can be critical for is injector wells. Uh-huh. Um, going the other way. Exactly. So let's say you're going to inject some seawater um, to try and push oil closer to some other wells on a platform, for example. Hmm. Now you spent millions of dollars drilling a well that the payback is in the water being injected and making other wells produce more oil. Um, and so those can be particularly challenging, um, because if you think about it on a producer, I may have some residue I can just produce back with, you know, the filter cake, I could produce it back when you inject and you're going on what's called direct injection, where you just start pushing water in, um, that, that material is getting pushed back into the formation and, um, limiting where you can inject. So this stuff can be pretty, pretty high profile. Although, like you mentioned, I mean, we do this on the Gulf coast of Texas and Louisiana, uh, pretty common as well in some of these old formations. Right, right. So I guess, you know, a lot of it comes down to just really uh, doing everything we can from a mud standpoint to eliminate formation damage. So, I mean, can you elaborate a little bit on, on formation damage and, and what products either you use or or what can affect that when designing something like this? Sure. So, I mean, the very first base case when you think about... Um, Damage is, is philosophically, I don't like to hear non-damaging or um, that, that kind of term because arguably, as soon as you alter the state of the reservoir, as soon as the bit enters the reservoir, you're causing damage. The question is, am I minimizing that damage to where it's negligible mm. or um, is it in such a way that this actually matters considerably and I'm going to lose money on my production? Um, and so there's a lot of different ways that you can cause formation damage. For example, uh, the reservoir brine um, could precipitate out solids if it's incompatible with the filtrate in your mud. Mm. Um, clays, reactive clays, or uh, let, let's say I swell it and it plugs up some pore spaces um, or disperses and um, spreads out and becomes part of my filter cake. Uh, you know, there, there's a number of different components and even in oil-based mud, when I have a, a filtrate, it can create an emulsion with the crude oil that's present. Right. Um, so there's just a, a lot of things to, to think about. And I think kind of ironically, what it means is a reservoir drilling fluid typically has a lot less products than a conventional oil-based or water-based mud. Right. And, and so why would that be? 
Well, because so many of these things, if you think about it, when we're trying to minimize cost while drilling, we're trying to get properties Mm -hmm. and the properties in the moment. So I might have a contaminant that I decide I'm just going to disperse out, right? Or I might might want the filter kick really, really tight, but the filter, so I have really low fluid loss, which is great, but now I can't get rid of that filter cake because the components are non-soluble or um, they create so much adhesion to the wellbore wall that I can't actually flow back that through there anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so you typically eliminate some of your, your most common components. And, you know, even a lot of these fluids are 100% weighted by calcarb and brine. Right. So you might use a, an exotic brine like sodium bromide or potassium formate and then use a little bit of solids for bridging. Um, and keep it pretty simple, a little bit of xanthan gum, mm-hmm. um, some, uh, you know, a good quality starch. Right. Uh, it gets interesting with the oil-based mud because you're trying to get as heavy as possible. And so you'll end up, I've drilled with muds that we designed from the get-go that had a 50-50 oil water ratio. Wow. With a calcium bromide brine internal phase that was 13.8. Oh, wow. So um, just to be able to get the density, obviously, having that get, low oil content to be have enough brine in there to weight the system up. Exactly. And that was an injector well where it was absolutely critical that they could um, drill with oil-based mud, but, uh, have completely soluble components. Um, and you know, that one was interesting because we had so much calcarb in it that the plastic viscosity was like 60, which would normally terrify you. Right. Of course. Yeah. And we basically just got together as a, as a team and, and control drilled, made sure we stayed within our ECD window, um, and accepted it as, as part of the deal. Mm. Um, but the well was so critical. It, it was, we're slowing down. Um, and so really, you know, when you think about the components, water-based mud, it's, it's brine, starch, xanthan gum, some calcarb maybe. Yeah. Um, and then oil-based mud I sort of described, but you'll avoid those black powders because they disperse and consolidate the filter cake. Gotcha. You won't use gel. You know, gel is clay. It, it will uh, consolidate down um, pack. I, I like to avoid pack because that material lays down a, a very tightly wound filter cake. And what you want is if you think about it, I bring the well in production and I want these little pinholes to form right away. Mm. I don't want to have to peel off a big layer of filter cake to get my hydrocarbons to produce. Right. We call that term the flow initiation pressure, what it takes to actually initiate flow of hydrocarbons. I have to pull much harder if the filter cake is better tightly packed on the formation. Of course. So, Is there anything with regards to filter cake that, you know, at the end of the well that, uh, companies can do to sort of help break down or flush out a lot of that filter cake? Well, you mentioned pumping a breaker. And so that's, that's typically after drilling, um, we'll, we'll pump a breaker, which, um, you know, this is one of those terms that of course one group of people uses and then somebody else uses it for the exact same thing. So, (laughs) um, our, our stimulation audience, you know, both of you, if you're out there, I'm kidding. I don't, I don't know, but, uh, you know, in in the stimulation world, you would pump like an oxidizer along with your uh, your gel to um, do a frac job, and the idea would be that it would um, the oxidizer would break that cross link or what have you over time. Well, this is usually a material; it's a fluid that you would spot across the open hole. Okay. Um, you know, it used to be a lot of folks would acidize, and they try and go in with coil later and acidize. You can save a ton of money by just spotting a pill, basically, of a treatment that's designed to break down the filter cake. The trick is you want to get nice, even removal. You don't want to break open one spot and then have all of your breaker fluid get lost to the, to the uh, uh, formation. 
you want to get a nice consistent um, coverage. Right. And so you want this to work relatively slowly. Um, and these, uh, you mentioned enzymes. So enzymes get, get rid of starch. Uh, chelants uh, remove calcium carbonate. There are things called acid precursors, which convert to acid through hydrolysis downhole. Mm. Um, so they can dissolve a lot of stuff. Um, but it goes back to whatever's in my filter cake, I got to remove. So um, I want to make sure that that material can be removed. Gotcha. So if, if, if a company knows that they're going in, they're going to do an open hole completions, obviously there's a lot of design work and planning that goes into something like this. I mean, especially when you're talking reservoir and production, mm-hmm. you better have all your I's dotted and your T's crossed. So, you know, before even, you know, pumping anything downhole, what, what does some of the design and pre-planning look like? So it can be extensive. And, and I'll say that, um, well, yours truly has written several papers on, on this process, <laughs> but it's pretty much the same everywhere. So, uh, you know, there's a number of folks who've written some, some really good technical papers. If you're looking, um, you know, Mark Leister kind of mentored me through all of this. Nice. Uh, he's got some great stuff. Um, there's, uh, there's a number of people who've, who've written this stuff up, but, uh, if you look at any paper I wrote, it probably cites somebody that you can look beyond me and, and learn a little bit, but the process is very iterative. So, so the very first thing we want to do is say, okay, is a formation water compatible with my brine or will it create some solid when the two interact? Sure. So it's just basic jar testing. You either secure or synthesize some formation water. Um, you mix it in different ratios with your brine. See if anything happens. That helps you select your base fluid. Um, so, for example, some reservoirs, you know, calcium precipitates a lot. So, mm-hmm. calcium chloride and calcium bromide are typically um, only compatible with certain reservoirs. A lot of parts of the world, they're not. Um, and so, you may have to substitute out for a monovalent brine like sodium bromide. Um, in other cases, you can do some things to inhibit that precipitation or, or help make sure it stays compatible through additives. But that just starts with the, you know, the base brine. You also do crude compatibility, make sure that there's not going to be an emulsion forming between those brines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you, you do a lot of these little jar tests sort of to get comfortable. And then you'll go to make your mud. And, you know, sometimes you, you may actually be trying to decide, do I need a shale inhibitor? Can I drill this with water-based mud? Can I drill it with oil-based mud? So we do a lot of that same shale testing we've sort of described in the past, and I'm sure we'll make a detailed episode on that soon. Um, <laughs> But you get your mud properties, you get your fluid loss. Uh, your fluid loss, normally, they don't even run an API. They'll run a, an HPHT on an, uh, a ceramic disc, uh, usually sized to the reservoir. So we've already done some characterization of pore sizing on the reservoir. Mm-hmm. Um, and in essence, once I get a good low fluid loss, um, I have my rheological properties. It's, you know, we've done hot roll testing. Everything looks good. Um, one of the tests that we might do with or without a breaker is called a flowback test, although other folks call it different things. Sort of, that's the nomenclature I'm familiar with. Sure. But basically what it is, is the idea that you take, a, you take that disc, that ceramic disc, and you pump fluid through it at a constant rate, and you measure how long it takes for that fluid to get through. Okay. Then you make a filter cake. Um, so you, you, put that on, um, you put that in a cell, you make filter cake on it, and then you flow fluid through it again. Um, you could do this after a breaker soak even and either go in the production or injection direction and basically say, okay, it flowed at this rate with nothing in it. It flows at this rate after I exposed it to filter cake. Hopefully those numbers are close together and that regain flow or return to flow is sort of 
a poor man's return permeability test. Okay. Which is sort of your your final candidate before you scale up to a return perm test. And return perm tests are typically very expensive, you know, eight, ten thousand dollars. So you want to have your best candidate identified sure and not do that twice if you can avoid it yeah um so w- typically in one of these labs you'll see eight million hpht cells because everybody's running fluid loss and doing breaker soaks and comparing you know four or five different breaker formulations after you have your reservoir drilling floor formulation mm. um, but it's just a lot of testing i got you so uh in how would what would be the ratio from say oil-based to water-based drilling fluids i mean typically i've seen just water-based drilling fluids but there are oil-based drilling fluids as well there are um you know it comes down to what you're trying to do so for example an oil-based mud producer that um is relatively low cost to remediate um you don't need a breaker you just want to minimize formation damage so Mm. i mean for me it's like oil-based mud all the way yeah most of the time it's it's what the customer you know, the customer will dictate that. Sure. Water-based mud, I know I can acidize and, you know, do other things if I get in a bind and some folks like that. I got you. Um, but there are breakers for oil-based mud. Um, the key is that everything's oil wet. So you've got to have a really powerful water wetting agent to get any acid or other treatment to actually address the material. So um, there's, that can be a driver is when people are really focused on cleanup, they may insist on water-based mud. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Uh, so looking at it from when you're on the rig, I mean, you, you obviously do the same mud check and everything like that, but I would imagine running it, uh, you know, is, is it, it runs itself a little bit different. And I mean, are there any operationally, is there anything else that really is more emphasized using a drill and fluid system than you would just a typical water-based mud? Being that the cost is obviously the cost per barrel can get up there pretty high. Yeah, well, I mean, the the irony is you may run a couple of extra special tests, but you don't do anything. You don't treat out contaminants. Um, and hmm. so it's, what's kind of ironic is once you actually get to the rig site, you spent months and months doing the design work. Um, you've done the return perm testing, which I'll, I'll talk about a little bit more here in a second. Um, all you really do out there is um, measure how much drill solids are accumulating in your mud, and when it gets high enough, dilute. Okay, because, so a lot of dumping and diluting. Exactly, because drill, what drilled solids do is they accumulate in the mud and then they build up in that filter cake. If you think about your overall solids percentage, mm-hmm. because it's really just calcium carbonate and a little bit of starch, everything else that becomes part of your filter cake could be clay, could be sand, that's non-soluble, and if it consolidates, um, it won't lift off. Sure. So, um, it, you know, most of the time, if you send a specialist out there, their biggest job is making sure everything's clean and not just clean enough, but pretty clean. And then I, I think diluting, like running the mud is one of the easiest things to do. Okay. It's all the fluid movements. If I'm going to spot a breaker, I have spacers I need to pump. I need to make sure it gets located in the right spot. Uh, I got you. Um, and so uh, screen running is a whole other nightmare of making sure that when you run these sand control screens, they don't get plugged by anything in the mud. Oh, yeah. I could um, see that being. so. Because if you did, you'd end up having to pull it all out hey, or pump yeah. something to flush that out. Yeah. And, and sometimes even, you know, it's too late. You bring the well in production thinking you're going to get 3,000 barrels a day oh, and they're yeah. plugged and you collapse them. Um, oh, geez. So, so at that point, then you have to do go in and do a workable track. job? Oh, you have to redrill it. Oh, wow. Yeah. Hmm. So, so yeah, that's, it's a pretty sensitive operation then, obviously. Yeah. So, and, and so a lot of it is just chasing around 
um, making sure everything's in order. And and part of the irony is like whenever I've spent a, sent a specialist out there, it's to make sure the mud engineer doesn't do what a mud engineer does. I don't mean that in a bad way. They're always thinking of ways to optimize the operation. What if we put it in this pit and you know move it over here? And and there's plenty of reasons not to do that in a sensitive operation like this. Gotcha. And so most of the time, you bring out a really experienced mud engineer. To kn- who knows what a mud engineer would do to stop them from thinking too far ahead of the game yeah. so that this thing goes off really clean. So it, it at that point, it really comes down to people in the field knowing what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, there's a bunch of completion people out there because completion screens and who knows how to make them up and of course, run yeah. them. And uh, if you're pumping a gravel pack or or something like that where there's a pumping crew out there. You just imagine offshore, you're always short on bed space. <laughs> Onshore, you're short of hotels. I mean, it's <laughs> no it's kidding. a packed house. No kidding. Well, you mentioned, uh, I think you called it return permeability. You said you were going to elaborate on that. D- touch on that. That's a term I've heard, but never really had an opportunity to hear sort of the details behind it. Yeah. So um, we've, we've scaled up and uh, we've done our design work and everything. And then <clears throat> we want to do kind of a qualification test if we can on actual core from the reservoir. Uh, I gotcha. Uh, so we can get our hands on that. And in many occasions we can't, we'll try and use some sort of analog. Um, but the idea is that this is a tester that you put the core in, you can put it under some stress. Um, and then you can actually circulate mud across the core face or four hours, whatever the, whatever the test procedure calls for, you, you can, first you flow, you get a flow rate with nothing on the core. Of course, yeah. Then you expose the mud, circulate, deposit the mud, and then you could do your breaker soak, what have you, and then you flow it back and you get that percentage. Percentage after exposing to mud compared to my percentage with nothing. Mm-hmm. And and what is my relative flow rate? And that, that's your return permeability number. Okay, so um, the, I guess... The higher permeability, so like the lower the number, the better? Or? Well, the higher the better because you take it as a percentage of what you had. Oh, so, I see. So 100% would be ideal. It would be ideal. I think, it, you know, what's interesting is the procedures, uh, I, one paper that um, I got to write with Mark, and the, the guy taught me everything I know. So like Mark Leister, if you're out there, you're the man. <laughs> um, but just a, a brilliant, brilliant guy. Um, and And we went over all the procedural stuff because we'd have customers say, look, I don't really care what your procedure is. If you can get me 100% return perm, the work is yours. Wow. And there's a sort of ethical boundary of, I could do it. <laughs> I can't do it with integrity. Sure, I yeah. need you to understand um, you know, how long you deposit the filter cake matters. Mm-hmm. Um, th- things like that. Uh, um, it, there, there's a number of different ways to game the system, and I think most of it's just from a lack of understanding. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, return perm tester is as close to the real deal as you can possibly get with temperature, circulating fluid across the core face, those kinds of things, moving fluids around, breaker soaks. Um, and you'll look at that percentage that you get, which, you know, some folks will say, oh, I need, if you think about it, let's say I have a Darcy sand. I mean, that's huge permeability. Yeah. Um, if I only get 50% return perm, I still have 500 milladarcies. Yeah. That's that's a lot it's of quite flow. A bit, yeah, cuz normally you talk in milladarcy, so Darcy's <laughs> huge. Right. So let's say that an, we're we're drilling another reservoir in another field next door and and we're dealing with 50 milladarcies. And I get a 50% return perm and now I have 25 milladarcies. Yeah. That depending on what my expected production is, whether it's oil or gas, that matters more. Of course. Um and so it's just kind of interesting cuz everybody's like, "Oh, I want 100%." It's like, "Well, 
probably above about 75, you will never know the difference. Okay. Um, and then below that, uh, it matters, but it only matters relative to the quality and, and permeability of, of your reservoir in the first place. So there's just a ton of confusion around that testing. And I, I felt like when I've dealt with customers where we um, have the opportunity and core available to scale up to a test like that, yeah, that's education on that is probably the biggest part of my job from the office is explaining how we're going to run the test before we run it. Hmm. Um, and then almost everything else about the actual test itself is sort of going over the results. Okay. Um, so tests like that, you, I mean, you need special equipment for that or is there only certain labs that do it or? Yeah, well, it's kind of funny. So there's certain labs that do it, but this is, this is kind of the classic, you know, like we talk about lubricity meters, these special lubricity meters, right? Yeah. If somebody's a good, you know, lab person, they'll come up with their own tester and then <laughs> That's the only valid tester now on the planet is the one they made. Right. And the lab down the road, <laughs> they've got the only valid tester. Well, return permeability. So there are some uh, vendors who actually sell a, you know, a built together kit. I got you. But this initially started by people designing these things themselves. And so, the, and, and the equipment's extremely expensive. You're talking about a million dollars plus. Wow. Um, because of high pressure, precision pumps, um, you know, corrosion-resistant metallurgy throughout, Inconel, you know, very high-grade stuff. Um, and so what you had is you had all these people all over the world who had developed their own tester, and their tester was the best. And so you, there's a lot of confusion where API actually tried to come up with a standard. Hmm. Um, and Michael Byrne did a lot of the work on this. He's excellent paper if you're interested in formation damage you know, read all of his stuff, particularly when you look at the API committee stuff, because they were, we sent mud to five different labs and we got five completely different results. No kidding. And not only that, but they said it was more or less, it even varied by the person. You couldn't get the procedure specific enough to get consistent results between two people. Wow. Um, and if you get really good at it, I mean, it was crazy working with Mark because we'd get, we'd get the results back and they were kind of, something didn't seem right. And Mark would just look at a picture of the cell and say, you know, this happened and you'd be like, Whoa, what? <laughs> and, and then he'd call the test, the, the person who ran the test, like, Hey, did you notice an abnormal pressure here? Yeah. You have an artifact in your test. I need you to rerun this. Um, you should have told me that before you continue with the test. Wow. And it's like, and it was like, yeah, he did tell him, I guess I just didn't think much of it at the time, but, um, you get pretty good at looking at these and identifying artifacts. No shit. Um, so yeah, uh, family show. Um, <laughs> But uh, even uh, even with breaker placement, I can I can game the test there. So uh, uh, Cedric uh, Manzalua, if I said your name right, um, a great guy I used to work with at my old job. Uh, Cedric and I, I and uh, another guy David Lee, we put together a paper on just artifacts on testing that. Okay. Um, so the reason I wanted to spend time on return perm testing is because it's sort of a hot mess when it comes down to nailing down procedures. There's a lot of money to be made in confusing the audience. Uh, so there's a, just a lot of strange advice out there. Sure. Um, and so uh, I, think, I think people are getting more comfortable with the procedures, but they're even going to vary by the apparatus you're using. Um, and so there's just so much education required in that. Yeah, no kidding. Well, you're, I mean, quite honestly, you're really the, one of the only people I've ever met that has experience with drilling type fluids. So uh, I appreciate you clearing the air for me. It's been 
it's been certainly a journey uh, for the last half an hour here, and hopefully the listeners got a lot of uh, you know information out of it, which I'm sure they did. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on? I don't really have any more questions, but that's all I could think of for today. No, I mean, I you know, I, I think that it's really just reservoir drilling fluids are scary because you have to do things different, and yeah. it feels like the stakes are really high. Well, there's really to me, there's less margin for error. Like yes. with the oil-based mud, you're drilling something you're going to frack, you know, mm-hmm. the you know the living daylights out mm-hmm. of. Like there, there's really it's not like, oh, you can't add this, you can add that, but you can't add this. You know, you take losses, you know, throw whatever you can down the wellbore and, you know, plug it off because we're going to frack it anyways. Uh, to me, it's, I would be walking on eggshells, I feel like, if we were going into, and, and we have, uh, me personally, I haven't been part of a, a drill and fluid operation, but it just seems to me like there's a lot of pressure on it because y- your fluid ultimately can affect production rates. And if production rates aren't what, you know, the operator wants, then I would imagine there's a, there's a liability factor that goes into it as well. Right. Well, and, and you bring up uh, another good point. So let's drag this on a little more. No, uh, you know, even getting between drilling teams, think about it. Completion usually determines how the well is going to be produced or how the completion is going to be installed. Right. Drilling guys want to get to TD as fast as humanly possible. Um, and so there's a lot of um, overlap where, okay, well, we're drilling the reservoir and there's going to be a completion installed. So who's in charge? And how are we going to do this? And so sometimes it's be, trying to be a referee in a customer between their completion engineers and their drilling engineers. When the drilling engineers know about how to drill with a, you know, a drill bit and drilling tools and all that, the completion folks know enough about why they wanted an open hole completion. And so, you know, they've got skin in the game. Of course. Yeah. And so it's sometimes completion takes over when you drill a reservoir. Other times it's not till you TD. Mm-hmm. Um, and every company's different. So it, that's that's a mess but uh, well yes it's it's a mess we'll call it that but i what i what is interesting is once you get the hang of it the fundamentals are are kind of the same thing over and over again um i really enjoyed educating customers and i think that's why i was able to do it for as long as i did yeah but the strategy was pretty much the same um and it was fun to be a lot of it was you know big time projects you were working on and and that sort of thing cool um so that was neat to be a part of but as scared as people get, as you mentioned, once you understand the basic rules, um, everything else people dump in front of you, it, you shouldn't be intimidated by. Um, I mean, it, it really just needs to be an educational process from the rig crew up. Mm-hmm. Um, and once once you kind of know the rules, how much changes from well to well. Gotcha. Um, so, uh, you know, I would I would say don't get discouraged if, you know, you're involved in one of these jobs there. Some of it can feel pretty intense, but at the same time, it's, it's all about procedure, you know, following the steps and, and the steps are out there. Yeah. So no, I would imagine, cause this has been around for a long time, obviously, even before unconventionals were, you know, part of the, the oil and gas industry, right? Sure. I mean, they've, they've inv- evolved, you, you know, um, certainly they've, uh, been around for, for long enough and grown in, in some of these bigger scale projects. Uh, but you know, the unconventional boom is relatively new. And so, yeah, they preceded it and, um, they continue to be a part of, of conventional production for sure. Interesting. Well, if anyone out there has any good experience or, uh, you know, that wants to share some knowledge or simply has any more questions, feel free to hit us up at the Flowline podcast at aesfluids.com. Matt, any closing last words? I think I just gave everybody a mouthful, so I'll <laughs> shut up now, but thank you guys for listening. Absolutely. As always. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening. Please tune in next week for another exciting episode of The Flow Line. 
And remember, may your returns always be full and your trips always smooth. Views expressed in this program belong to participants and not their employees. The program is for informational purposes only and cannot take the place of seeking professional advice. Copyright AES Drilling Fluids.